I don't need help. I'm not in an abusive relationship. This is just how it is for us. It's a lie we tell ourselves, one that many in abusive relationships repeat until they believe it. But there's hope. Welcome to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship, a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence. This show is about hope. You will hear from survivors of abuse, and their stories may sound familiar. They may even inspire hope. Our goal is to connect with others in these toxic relationships to offer that hope, and with supporters of our mission, anyone willing to help get rid of abuse in our culture. We also talk with the experts in the field, from the officers on the front lines of domestic abuse calls to the therapists and advocates helping survivors navigate this complicated road of recovery. If you're in need of help, please visit our website or call our 24-7 hotline, 800-828-2023. And if this is an emergency and you need help immediately, please call 911. Thank you for joining us once again for I'm Not in an Abusive Relationship. This is Claudia Pauls. And today we're here with Elizabeth Alderson, who is a master, licensed master social worker and a clinical therapist for DASIS. Uh, welcome to the show today, Liz. Thanks for having me. Sure. And today um, we're going to talk a bit about, um, well, always domestic violence and prevention and recovery, but how does that affect the brain itself, which I'm sure um, it does in a, a variety of ways. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I want to start by saying that I am not a neurobiologist. That's the specific like degree in stuff that you can get for people who exclusively study the brain. Mm -hmm. um, so <laughs> this is going to be like a very basic um, one, because I don't think any of our, you know, many of our listeners are probably not neurobiologists either. Uh, Probably true. Yeah. Well, plus I think it would take what 20 years of schooling to get to that point. So, yeah. So there's a lot of like good information out there from neurobiologists. That's whose research I look at when I'm looking at um, how is the brain affected by domestic violence and sexual assault um, and how the brain is just works in general. Um, there are a lot of good trainings, webinars from them over the years that I've attended, um, probably over the last six, seven years, I've attended a lot of trainings um, on from neurobiologists about domestic violence and sexual assault, specifically how they affect the brain. But overall, there's a ton of research about how trauma affects the brain. Mm -hmm. And so just that broad definition of trauma and its effect of the brain is, is really helpful. But I think the key to take away about how domestic violence affects the brain that's different than when we just think about like one traumatic event is that domestic violence is a traumatic event, but it happens multiple times a day for several days in a row, for weeks in a row, for months in a row, and for years in a row, depending on how long a person is in that relationship. Wow, right. Well, like we think of trauma like, um a one-time thing, you know, maybe like an accident or a heart attack or a trauma, but just realizing those traumas that happen over and over and over again, that's, that's an astounding thing for someone to have to deal with. Yes. And so I think that's, that's one of the things to remember when we think about it is it's over and over and over. And so that's why we can see, or we can talk about um, how the brain is impacted 
severely or maybe persistently over and over again, because it does it. I mean, you think about it, if you're, and you know, right now, you know, we're kind of all at home, right? Mm -hmm. So you're living with your partner and they are abusive and you are not leaving your home because of, you know, a global health pandemic, right? You may be experiencing domestic violence and trauma to your brain 50 times a day for the past, how long have we, you know, seven, eight months since March. And so that there's a lot of persistent and big fancy word, um, like pervasive brain trauma that's happening. Wow. So I'm assuming it goes in levels or, or how do people, you know, obviously this is another um, tragedy involved with domestic violence and something that you need to escape from, recover from, but how do you begin to deal with that? Yeah. So a lot of times in therapy, the beautiful piece about therapy is many of us use um, psychoeducation in therapy and trauma therapy. And so psychoeducation is just educating the person that we're working with that client on how their brain works. Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes, you know, a therapist will advise a client like, hey, let's practice a skill, right? A lot of people are talking about meditation, deep breathing, yoga. Those are things people do that aren't in therapy. And then people who are in therapy kind of practice those skills with their therapist as well. Well, if you just say, I should breathe, and we're going to breathe together. You know, I might not be that interested in it. I breathe all day long. I'm still alive. <laughs> sure. You no, know? it's, yeah. you know, it's true. And so but when we talk about how breathing affects our brain, and how trauma has affected our brain, that sometimes gives us more insight into what's happening and therefore one will encourage me to then like do a practice more often typically but also there's so much healing that comes just internally from understanding hey I'm not crazy my brain does this because it experienced trauma mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I do a ton of brain education with my clients and I always kind of start with the premise of, again, very basic, because I don't know about you, Claudia, I do not remember anatomy class in high school when they talked about the parts of the brain. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure we had that class when I was in high school. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and those, those words, you know, all of our body part words, mm -hmm. those come from the Latin roots, and I'm also not fluent in Latin. <laughs> right. No, I'm with you. You know, so when I talk to clients, I start with um, talking about our brain and I kind of try to give them visuals whether we're you know just because I like pictures and stuff but I like to think of the part of my brain that's right behind my forehead um, a neurobiologist would call that your prefrontal cortex so okay. fancy words but this is where we as humans, where we learn all of our skills. So this part of our brain is where we have complex thinking. It's where our decision-making comes from. And it's where our ability to speak multiple languages is okay. kind of. So you think about the fact that we can do math, right? Now, we might not be able to do it well, because mm. I'm not like I used to be in calculus and trigonometry and all those other things, but our ability to learn it and do it is all prefrontal cortex thinking. Okay. 
um, our ability to speak multiple languages. You think about the world in general and how many languages humans speak on the planet. That's all prefrontal cortex thinking. So, you know, cats meow and they make noises, right? But they don't speak other languages. They make the same, they have the same set of language. They haven't, they don't learn other languages. And so they can mimic other animals. They can chirp like birds and kind of like respond to dogs in different ways, but they don't speak another language. We don't see them creating a whole other thing. And right. so the right. cortex is also very specific to humans in our engagement piece of it. And so you think about that. This is where my complex thinking is. This is where all my school education stuff happens, you know, all of my work in school and stuff. But what would happen if I couldn't activate this part of the brain regularly because of trauma? So trauma kind of turns off different parts of our brains in, you know, kind of like an easy way of thinking of it. It doesn't let us access all those different rooms in the house. If you think of your brain as like a house. So if you can no longer go in this room, school's going to be difficult for you, right? Oh yeah. Right. Any kind of decision-making is going to be difficult for you. Mm -hmm. You know, we think about all the decisions we make as humans and those are going to be difficult. And what often happens is um, cause and effect are no longer linked together. Huh. So they're not like realizing because of this trauma, then my brain is not going to be working. So the cause and effect, I mean, they're just dealing with the effect because mm -hmm. it's so hard to deal with the cause. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, I often explain what trauma does to the brain. And we're gonna talk about some other parts of the brain, but the way that trauma works in the brain is, do you remember ever like walking at a park or a grassy field or cutting through a neighbor's yard to go to somebody else's house and you did that path enough that you you made a dirt pathway in like a grassy field or something like that sure so that's the normal pathways of our brain we create pathways our whole entire life every time we learn something new it's a new pathway what happens in trauma is that that we can no longer access that pathway. So imagine they've built a house through that field you used to walk through. Well, you can't, you can't walk that path anymore. And mm -hmm. that was the shortcut. That was the quickest way to my best friend's house. So now I have to go a different way. Mm -hmm. And it's gonna take me longer to go that way, right? And so much energy and so many thoughts to figure it out and mm -hmm. yeah. And so, but that's just one traumatic thing, right? That was one house being built. Mm -hmm. So now I'm taking a new path, but what if a house gets built there? Mm -hmm. And then it keeps happening. So these pathways keep changing. And so I think of so many survivors that I've worked with, you know, I can just, I can see them in front of me that, that you can just ask, you know, well, what, what was the process of thinking that, you know, I, I, I did this, I knew it wasn't maybe the most healthy choice that I could make, but I did it because it was the only choice I had. And, you know, other systems that we work with could be condemning about the choices that we make as, as mm -hmm. humans, especially as survivors. But if we, if they don't understand cause and effect, and if all their pathways are blocked, mm -hmm. they're going to get to their best friend's house any way possible. Sure, sure. 
And because our prefrontal cortex, our pathways aren't as blocked as they theirs are, you know, maybe they are from our own trauma, but you know, that it gives an example of to how, you know, my cause and effect thinking could be really shameful and guiltful on a person who who's, doesn't have that ability or their ability is severely, you know, been compromised because of trauma. So when you're seeing some, a situation from the outside and you may think, well, I can't even understand why they would do what they've done, you know, or mm -hmm. why they continue to stay in this uh, situation or whatever, um, that whole realization now of so many pathways perhaps to be out of that situation are just not there anymore. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that's just, that's just one part of our brain. So that's the most critical piece sometimes for people, because that is all of our adult functioning, you know, mm -hmm. all of our, because our prefrontal cortex, we're growing that we're engaging in that literally every time we go to school, you know, preschool through high school, through college, whatever people do. I mean, that is prefrontal cortex learning and engagement, mm -hmm. everything we do at school. And so you think about, you know, that piece. And then obviously adulthood, all the most, you know, the work that we do as humans. And so prefrontal cortex damage because of domestic violence can be pretty obvious sometimes. Right. Oh, yeah. it's, right. that, it's that cause and effect stuff. So we, now that we have that knowledge, right, that you and I have that knowledge, now that maybe a survivor that I'm giving this information to during therapy has that it has this new information, they now can recognize and say, hey, it took me longer to do this thing because of this trauma in my prefrontal thinking. And so hopefully that kind of takes away some of the shame and the guilt that they're feeling about their decision-making, about their critical thinking, or again, their ability just to behave maybe socially um, or society-wise in what the rest of society would deem as appropriate behavior. Right. Well, and then also to give them that hope and energy that, um, well, yeah, I'm, I'm just not even going to try because it takes me too long. I can't figure it out. This doesn't seem to work. People are, you know, thinking I'm doing the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. But then to be able to take a breath and say, okay, I just need to keep chipping away at it. I know what that there's a block there. I know that I it's not just because I hit it doesn't mean I have to stop there that I have some help and some other options to get around this. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Because so, what happens is exactly what you said. I try to do something and I get so overwhelmed, stressed, anxiety, whatever the emotion is, mm -hmm. um, because I can't do it the way that somebody else wants me to do it. And so then I just shut down. Well, that shut down is a different part of our brain engaging. So that's our, um, at times that's our hypothalamus. See fancy Latin words here, man. Yeah. You um, say them really well though. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so that, that part of our brain is in charge of the hormones that are released in our brain. And mm -hmm. so, you know, so I've got this thinking that's happened and now I'm in my hypothalamus because all these emotions are happening. Emotions are just chemicals in our brain, you know, so cortisol is getting released because that's a stress chemical, a stress hormone in our brain. And so now I I'm here and I'm stressed. But what you said was I breathe, right? So I practice my mindfulness, my meditation, my yoga, all the fancy words for just taking a breath, taking a moment, and then re-engaging in my prefrontal cortex. And then I'm able to work on that. But that's a whole skill practice. That's what we do in therapy. Right. And so prior to therapy, before you take the breath, you just like hit the wall and stop. Exactly. 
Absolutely. That is in a very small little nutshell, the beginnings of therapy to just not let the wall stop you where you are, Mm -hmm. but to begin to be able to, to gain some control back that you've lost because of all that trauma. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, um, that's the whole hope is that at least my approach to therapy, you know, cause everybody has a different one is that giving somebody as many skills as possible to engage in, to then reactivate that prefrontal cortex thinking, you know, cause I, what I always share with clients is what skill works for me and what skill works for the client I met with before you and after you mm-hmm. isn't what's going to work for you because we're all unique individuals. And so I like to give as many skills as possible and then hear back from the clients, what's working for you? What's not working for you? Because I have a set of skills that I share with everybody because I think they're highly effective. Mm-hmm. And then on how a client responds or uses those skills, then I'll share with them some different ones. Because again, everybody's different. You like different things than I like. And so your brain is going to engage differently in those skills than my brain's going to engage in. And so it's all about having all these skills. So every time I get overwhelmed, every time I get stressed, every time I get whatever emotion I'm feeling, I don't stay there because staying there is the unhealthy piece. Emotions are not unhealthy. Our brain has the chemicals to release them for a reason. So the emotion isn't unhealthy. The stuck is unhealthy. Mm -hmm. And so, so as, as you continue with therapy and realization as to what's happening, is it possible then to, to rebuild those shortcuts and those pathways that you had? Yes. Yeah. So um, it, what I've seen so far in neurobiology um, research, and I forget now what the term's called for, it's like neuro connectivity, connectivity and neuropathways, I think are the terms that they use. So what I've seen so far is that we don't necessarily re-engage the same pathway ever um but that that trauma kind of like makes it a dead end mm-hmm. you know um but that over time what we do is we engage new pathways and then we start to use those pathways more often so you think about you know um currently you know kind of where in the area that you know we operate in St. Joe County, we've had a lot of um, road construction this past year, you know, it wasn't winter in Michigan, therefore it was road construction. Oh, right. <laughs> and so what right. happens is detours happen because our main path that we used to drive is under construction and you can't do it anymore. But how many times do you start going that direction to remember, oh, dead end, and I got to turn around and go take the detour? Right, yes. So that's our brain. It's going to keep going the way it used to go, realize there's a dead end, and then go back and take the detour. That's why there's that slow processing. But eventually, we learn, you know, before I pull out of my driveway, don't turn right, go left, the right is blocked, right? And so eventually, I go left. And eventually, after a while, I don't even have to think about it. I just pull out of my driveway and I go left. And that's that new pathway getting formed. And then we use it without ever considering the old pathway anymore. And you still get to your best friend's house and it doesn't take you 10 times as long. Exactly. Because we're used to using it. So we're not taking that pause to think Mm -hmm. about, what do I have to do? Oh, yeah, this way, you know. And so, yeah, it goes quicker and quicker. The more we use it, the more well-traveled it is. Right. It is our brain for it engage in it. So my husband used to coach um, little kids soccer when our daughter was playing soccer and 
And he would say over and over, you know, you always hear practice makes perfect, but that's really not true. What happens is practice makes permanent. So you get those habits that you practice and practice and eventually you don't have to think about it. It is the way that things happen. So yes. without I those robots, perfect. yeah. So yeah, yeah, he's a smart guy. <laughs> so without those roadblocks, roadblocks being put in front of you every time because of the trauma, as you begin to heal from that and you practice your new ways, all kinds of, of wonderful things are gonna be able to happen as you go forward. Yes, exactly. I love that. I had to write that down, Claudia. Um, <laughs> I'll have to give him yes. credit. <laughs> yes. Well, because that's exactly, so what I share with clients, one of my favorite skills to share with clients about like lowering those emotions and turning on that prefrontal cortex is a skill called square breathing. And it's just breathing in the shape of a square. And so you breathe in for four counts you hold your breath for four counts. So that's like the other part of the square. You breathe out for four counts and then you hold your breath again for four counts. So it's four, mm -hmm. four, four, four. And so you keep breathing around a square and you can find a square anywhere in everywhere because they're everywhere when you start to think of them. And so I always share that with them. I give them a handout, like a piece of paper. Or I text them a picture of it, you know, now that we're digital so that they have a reference point to remember it. And we, and so we'll do it in session a few times, usually five or six, but I say repeat it until that intense emotion is lower until it's manageable or, you know, using different phrases. And I always give them the example of for square breathing for myself. I used to use square breathing to fall asleep and it would take me several times to do it. Cause also, so if it relaxes me when I'm stressed, the same breathing techniques are going to relax me and help me go to sleep. Right. Or if you wake up in the middle of the night, they're going to go to, you know, you're going to go to sleep. And I used to work, um, crisis lines and, um, like on call shifts mm -hmm. where you would to the hospital like to see someone who was maybe suicidal and so I was used to being on call needing to go to sleep but like also worried that I was going to get a bunch of calls that right. night right sure. so was really effective well I'm gonna have to try that <laughs> yeah so in the beginning I would do for a while you know I would go around and around and around and around and eventually you'd fall asleep it's kind of like counting sheep you know, it's the same premise. It's just something else to think about. Well, now I can square breathe one square and be completely asleep. Because your body just knows where that path is going or your brain knows yes. where that path is going. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, but I've been practicing it for five years. Right. Yeah. And it's so funny. It's so funny because um, Chris, our executive director, we've gone to trainings together and she says the same thing. She's like, you can just roll over and fall dead asleep. Like you are asleep, completely undisturbed. And I'm like square breathing, man. It's square breathing. <laughs> That's awesome. That's me. And it's effectiveness, right? And so everybody, it's going to be effective in different ways. And so it's it's that. It's what are the skills to help me re-engage my prefrontal cortex thinking? What are the what are the skills to engage to help my brain relax, to help it overcome these hormones that have been released that are maybe excessive to create that imbalance? What what do I do to bring myself back into balance to then help? And as we always talk about on the podcast, help and healing and hope and everything you've said today um, for those 
listening who are dealing with domestic violence and this continual trauma will absolutely lead to hope and health and healing, being able mm -hmm. to, to rebuild those pathways and to understand what is happening as all of this is going mm -hmm. on around you. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to throw in a question if I could, uh, Dan here. Um, so you, you, Liz, you talked about how this looks in adults. You know, we have, we have trouble making that cause and effect connection and, and some other things like that. Does it look different for children? Are there red flags maybe that we should be looking for in our, in our kids uh, or as, as teachers looking for in kids? How does this manifest itself? So trauma in children looks exactly like ADHD. Hmm. It has the exact same um, symptoms. And so that's why we see often in the mental health field that children are overdiagnosed with ADHD and underdiagnosed with trauma in the home because they're not gonna wanna talk about that trauma. So yeah, we think about, okay, so you're a kiddo, you're in second grade, and you're being asked to do some math problems, right? And you cannot figure them out. But yesterday you could. And today you just can't, right? Well, are you being, um, some negative terms, you know, would be, you know, are you just being um, a pain and choosing not to do them? Because you did them yesterday, you know. Dan, you did them yesterday and you did a great job at them. So what's the problem today? Well, I just, I don't know what the answer is, but you did it yesterday you know and so it's that are you being defiant um sometimes it's that overactivity so we think again about the brain we've talked before about fight flight or freeze well if you got yelled at before you came to school today by parent and you watched the other parent you know yell and cuss and maybe hit your other parent you're going to come to school and you might still be in fight flight or freeze Absolutely. and so you're running all over the place you might be in that flea thing, right? But I'm going to see that as overactivity, that you're just being hyper. You know, so we think of all those kind of different things because the, the hard part about our poor kids is that they don't have this vocabulary that we do because their prefrontal cortex isn't as adapted as ours is in adulthood. You know, mine's fully formed. They say the prefrontal cortex is finished development around the age of 25 in adults. You know, so all of ours are fully formed, mm -hmm. but our five-year-olds are still in the depths of the beginning phases of it. And so their dysfunctional thought process, their decision-making totally out the window, right? If you, if you've only started to learn that fire is hot, think of our toddlers and our, you know, preschool, kindergarten age, if you've only begun to learn fire is hot, and then trauma happens, but again, not just one trauma, not just like the car accident, but every day or every other day there's trauma. Are you going to be able to remember fire is hot? Wow. So we have to get these kids in safe places. Yeah. Thank goodness for all the work you do. Yeah. And that's the beauty of, um, especially in Southwest Michigan, we have um, trauma centers that do like traumatic assessments on kids. Um, they're mandated through Michigan Department of Health and Human Services for every kid that enters foster care. So they have to get one done um, in many counties. And so it's amazing because those are our kids that we can probably 
pretty highly guess they've experienced some traumatic things. What about all our other kids? Of course, is the the thought in the back of the mind. But yeah, that we've started to do these trauma assessments in, and I mean, it's a specialty field. Like it's, you go to one organization, now there's a few more of them because the one was just overwhelmed. But you do these assessments to see what's the impact. And they do, I mean, multiple day assessments with these kids, hearing assessments, learning assessments, not just like, hey, what happened to you kid, but like these very in-depth assessments and they record the entire process. And then the typically it's only like one or two interviewers and then the whole team of interviewers then assesses and gives it like multi-page assessment on these kids and then the recommendation for them it's amazing it's very thorough very in-depth um it's awesome and then begin that process of letting that child build pathways that aren't going to have blocks in front of them absolutely but like you said they have to be in a safe place right Mm-hmm. What happens when I still live in the place where ke- it keeps tr- it keeps creating new traumas every day? Can I build a new pathway, or is that new pathway going to get just as disturbed as the old one? Wow, it's yeah. still helpful, right? I would never say, you know, like, oh, don't get therapy because you're still in the traumatic, you know, relationship or situation. It's still helpful, but to know that that's going to be some of the frustration, you know, I think about our teachers. You know, we have amazing teachers and education systems, of course, you are going to get overwhelmed with some kids and some families because they're going to keep coming to school and they're going to keep living in trauma, right? And again, we're talking about domestic violence, sexual assault. What about homelessness? That's an everyday traumatic event. Absolutely. About yes, food it is. security, you know, mm-hmm. not having enough food at your home. That's an everyday day thing. And so we could get frustrated at the kids. We could get frustrated at their parents. Why can't you just provide for them? You know, mm-hmm. what about their own traumas, you know? And so that, that, that's, it's a, it's a, it's a horrible, you know, difficulty that we face as communities. Cause it's a community issue when our kids and families are being affected this way, cause it affects us. Right. And helping communities learn what is going on and how to increase um, the, the opportunities for ending domestic violence and homelessness mm-hmm. and all of that is, mm-hmm. is definitely what we're all working toward. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. So, well, this has been an amazing, uh, eye-opening talk today. Thank you all for joining us. We, um, value you as always. And, um, should you personally want to reach out to DASIS, we have, wonderful therapists just like Liz on staff who are happy to help you and talk with you and the 800 number 1-800-828-2023 at any time and they would be happy to talk with you so thank you so much Liz and I'm sure we'll talk again soon thank you thank you for listening to I'm not in an abusive relationship if these stories resonate with you and you need help please visit our website D-A-S-A-S-M-I dot org. That's dasismi dot org. Or call our hotline at 800-828-2023. We are here to walk alongside you. Now, if you know someone who might benefit from our show, please share it. Social media, email, simply telling someone about it, all help us spread the word and help us to combat domestic and sexual violence. We also welcome financial and volunteer support. That information is on our website. Thank you to the staff, volunteers, and board of directors at Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services. 
This podcast is produced with the help of a committee of dedicated advocates. Thank you to WBET Radio in Sturgis, Michigan for the use of their studio. This has been a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence and a production of Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services of Michigan.